You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Uh, we're going to continue today in our series in the book of Ephesians. We're actually getting to the end of it. Uh, thank you, baby. And I feel a little sad, but it's all good. We have plenty more books to go through. So uh, if, you're, if you're here and you have your Bible, please open it with us <clears throat> in Ephesians chapter 6. <clears throat> and um, let me go ahead and pray before we start. <clears throat> Dear God, we thank you for your word. Um, thank you because we have the privilege and the blessing to access it without any restrictions or consequences. And I pray that we would appreciate that and also be open uh, to your word transforming us, uh, shaping us. And I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes and um, continue to form us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that your word would challenge us, but also bring hope and peace and joy to our hearts through Jesus Christ. I pray all these things in his name. Amen. <clears throat> so we're coming to the end of our series on, on the book of Ephesians. And uh, I was going to originally preach 6, 1 through 9, which is the relationship between parents and children, and then bond servants and masters, or slaves and masters. But I decided to just focus on parents and children, uh, mostly because I believe that the next se section has a lot of interesting and controversial statements that need to be taken uh, more, more seriously and deeply. So we're going to focus today on just parents and children. Uh, before, we, before we start, I just want to uh, remind us again of the context of the city that Paul is writing to. Remember that Ephesus is a, a, a large metropolitan city of the first century. It was a, a city, a very wealthy city. There was a lot of people from different places. There were people from uh, Rome and a uh, Greece and all kinds of places and Jew Jews, of course. And, and this was a part of a Roman empire at the time. So this was a, a Roman colony, a Roman city. And Paul is addressing the family. And we already saw that in, in the previous section when he talked to uh, husbands and wives. And some of the things that Paul is going to say are very controversial or revolutionary or radical to the society that he's writing to. So the family back then was not perceived exactly how we see the family today. The fam First of all, the family unit, and this is across the board, back then included not only what we believe is the nuclear family today, which is parents and children, but uh, families included parents, both grown-ups and small children, and grandparents, and it also included sometimes servants, and even aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews. So the family was seen as a larger unit rather than what we believe today as the nuclear family. But the other difference is that parents, specifically the father, was the ultimate authority in the house. And especially in Rome or in the Greco-Roman world, 
there was a concept that was named pater familias. And that meant that the, the father could exercise his power over his family, even in life and death issues. So the father of the house could decide whether a child or a person in his household would live or die. He had the right to abandon newborns, which was a common thing, especially little girls, that apparently did not provide or added any value to the household. Uh, they had the right to sell children. And basically, the father had unlimited power over all persons and things within the family. And I wish that was just in the Gentile community, but the reality is that this was also sometimes uh, practiced in the Jewish community. Um, it's my walk-up song. Um, uh, there's a, a Mexican theologian, Edesio Sanchez, and he talks about the, the culture at the time in, in the Jewish community, and he says, the father played a major role in the life of, of his household and community. The only difference was that the father had, uh, well, yet, while the father had the power of life and death over his household, his authority was not absolute. His authority did not extend to his grandsons, siblings, uh, grandfather, father, or uncles. Instead, he was responsible for his wives and their children. But most scholars also recognize that, similar to the Romans or other cultures, Jewish fathers had also the power of life and death over his family. They also had the responsibility to arrange marriages, and marriages to punish disobedience in, in all kinds of different ways, to sell his children into slavery, to divorce his wife, and to adopt as his heir a relative or, uh, or someone from outside of the family. So this is the context that Paul is writing to. It's not our context. It's something very different. Children did not have rights. They were considered property. And both Gentiles and Jews, even at some point, practice the sacrifice of children as an offering to their gods. And this is something that happened, and people didn't necessarily saw it as bad. So with this in mind, let's read our text today, Ephesians chapter five, 6, verses 1 through 4. And Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Remember that Paul continues the umbrella command or commandment, which is to submit to one another out of reference for Christ that he told us in chapter 5, verse 1. And then he now, he now then uh, tells us how that looks in different relationships. He started with husbands and wives, and now he's moving to children and parents. But remember, the command to submit was not only commanded to the wives and the children. The umbrella commandment is for everybody. Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. How does that look? It varies from relationship to relationship. And we adopted the definition that we see Paul use in Philippians 2 of what it means to submit, which is, in humility, 
Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we are to prefer, consider, and see others as more important than us. We must not only think of ourselves, but work for the interests of the other, just like Jesus. This was something that Paul continues to remind us. Do it like Jesus did it. So how does it look for kids or children? So that's the word that opens up. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Submitting for children, and I don't see many. I was hoping that my son Joel was here, but he's not. Submitting to parents for children looks like obedience. Notice that this is not the same word that Paul used for the women. He, he does not instruct women to obey their husbands, but rather to submit. It looks different for children. Children are to obey their parents in the Lord. Children consider their parents' interest over their own interest by obeying them. And this is something that Paul says pleases the Lord. There is, there, I don't know if you know this, but there's a parallel passage in Colossians 3 where Paul sort of summarizes the same thing he's saying to the Ephesian church, but in a smaller form. And on that passage of Colossians 3, Paul actually says, children obey your parents because this pleases the Lord. So, this is important that we are supposed to obey our parents because it pleases the Lord and because it is right. But there is something that uh, Paul says here that uh, not all the scholars agree on, but I, I believe it's relevant for us today, and, and that I believe is also revolutionary and radical to the culture back then. And Paul adds to the Lord, which is kids or children, obey your parents in the Lord. And some of the theologians I read say that this is a little bit of a clause that says as long as, as, long as it's in line with the Lord. And this was revolutionary because back then, as I said, kids had no say on anything. They had to obey their parents no matter what. If your parent told you to steal or to, or to, or to lie or to do anything, you had to do it. But Paul adds this clause of, in the Lord, as a clause that says you are only uh, commanded to submit or obey your parents as long as it is in line with what God says. And this is important because this is something that, in, in a sense, protected the children from harm. The children must obey their parents as long as it is in the Lord, or in light with what the Lord says. And this is something I've had to say to my kids. Because my kids have actually told me, I don't have to do what you say all the time. And I said, you're right. If I tell you something that goes against what God says, you have all authority to tell me no. But if not, you better do it. Boy. And this is something that I believe it's radical for that, for that uh, society. Then Paul moves on and references uh, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. He quotes that. He says, honor your parent and your mother. And then he adds, this is the first commandment with a promise. 
And I want to just make sure that we understand that when Paul uses the word honor, he is implying obedience, even though that's not the only thing that he's implying. Honor means to venerate, to respect, to obey, to submit, to appreciate, and even to spend on. This is what children are called to do because it is right, because it pleases the Lord. Submission to their parents for children looks like obedience. And this pleases God, and this honors the parents. And then Paul not only references that that commandment, which is the fifth commandment, he also says, this is the first commandment with a promise. And I don't know if you've ever spent some time on this, but this is interesting. So there's ten commandments, and the first four are all about you and God. They basically do not affect, in a sense, nobody else. It's... You shall not have any other gods before me. Remember? Anybody knows the Ten Commandments? The second one is you shall not make yourself an idol. Right? And you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And the fourth one is which? Nope. You shall keep the Sabbath day to worship God. That's the fourth one. So those four are the first four that have to do with you and God, right? And then Paul says that this is the first commandment with a promise, which is not true if we're talking about all of them, because the second commandment, the one that says, do not create another idol before me and worship him, also has a promise. And the promise is that God will show steadfast love to those who keep their commandments. In fact, he says to thousands of those who keep my commandments. So that's the first one with a promise. But another way to see this is that the last six have to do with each other or with others. And we can start to see an emphasis right there. There's four that have to do with me and God, and there's six that have to do with me and others. And then we jump into honor your father and your mother. You shall not lie, covet, murder, and all of those things. The first one of the last six, the first one of the six that have to do with others, with a promise, is this one. And the promise for this one is clear. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So children, if, if children obey their parents, God promises to them that it may go well with them, and that they may live long in the land. I don't think this needs interpretation. I believe that this is as clear as we can, as, as we can see it. What does that mean for us today? It means that if we obey our parents, it may go well with us, and that we may live long in the land. It's not a formula. It's not a guarantee. This does not mean that if you obey your parents, nothing is going to happen to you. This does not mean that if you obey your parents, you're going to live to be 100. That's not what it means. It means that you are helping the functioning of one of the most basic institutions of society, which is the family. And if you help that institution, then it will be good for everybody and for you especially. Now, something that we need to note, and I think this is more appropriate for this audience, is that even though Paul says children, the actual commandment in, the, in, in Exodus does not have any age restriction. 
In fact, this one also doesn't have an age restriction. The word that Paul uses is technon, which literally means the son or daughter of someone. And it doesn't have any age restriction. So, it doesn't matter how old we are, we are still called to honor our parents. But it looks different at different ages. As we grow older, it stops looking like obedience, but it begins to look more like honor, respect, and appreciation. And it also looks like spend on. And I believe that we need to do a better job as adult children in honoring our parents. And I'm not, when I say spend on, it's not it's only materially or in terms of money, but I think we need to spend time, spend energy, spend on our parents. Honoring our parents as adults means respecting them and appreciating them even with our time, our effort, and sometimes our money. Because they are part of our family. And I believe that eventually, it might even look like caring for them just the way they cared for us. And I know that as I say this, in the American society, it's not a popular thing to say. The eroded meaning of family in the West is very different from what Jesus was talking about or what Paul was talking about. The, what we consider the nuclear family is not what the, what, the, what the Bible refers to when it says the family. When the Bible talks about the family, it's not talking about you and your kids. No. When the Bible talks about the family, it's talking about a household a larger group of people and all their parents were considered part of the nuclear family. In fact, this is the case in some cultures today in many places around the world. Justo Gonzalez, which I've mentioned constantly, one of my favorite theologians and historian, critiques the idea of the Western view of the nuclear family, which in our context is children and parents, what we call the, the immediate family. And he says the following, the present notion of the nuclear family is a relatively recent phenomenon, mostly the result of the industrial revolution and of developments that took place since then. During most of human history, the normal, quote unquote, normal family has been the extended family. The nuclear family, so romanticized by movies about the 50s and so mourned by Christians who promote family values, is not the normal family. In fact, there is much to indicate that the nuclear family, far from being the quintessential family, is merely a temporary stage between the extended family and the final dissolution of the family. So what, Paul, what, what he's saying is we're seeing a reduction of family because of individualism that every time looks smaller and smaller. And we are getting to the point in our society that it does not matter what your parents say. It does not matter what anybody says. Everything is about you. And I believe that as Christians, we have forgotten our responsibility, especially as an adult, 
that we are still supposed to honor our parents. I'm not suggesting that your parents should live with you or that your extended family should live with you. That is a financial decision nowadays. But I believe that we should honor our parents, even as adults. We are to respect, appreciate, and spend time or spend on our parents. So what I would say to, to children, especially here seated, adult children, is the exact same thing I would tell couples today. Children are not a burden, they are a blessing from God. And I would say the exact same thing to all of us. Parents, older parents, are not a burden, they are a blessing from God to us as well. And in the same way there are abuses and excess and and all kinds of toxic difficulties that come into play, I believe that the Bible commands us to find ways to honor our parents. And if we're honest, our society does not respect or appreciate the elderly today. Our society romanticizes being young. And we have older people trying hard to not look old. But the reality is that as a society and as a church, we need older people. We need wise, because that's what the Bible calls them, seasoned, experienced voices in our churches that will help us in every area of our church. So, for us as as children, the command continues. We are to submit to one another by honoring our parents. And if you're young enough, obeying your parents. And then Paul Paul actually spends most of his time in this, uh, in this section with talking to the children. And then he just uses one verse to talk to the parents. And this is also noticeable because for us, we place such an emphasis on parenting, which is important, that we sometimes forget what it means to be a son or a daughter. Chapter, verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And again, in the context of that day, this is radical. It challenged the status quo. In a society where parents did not care at all about what their children's feelings or opinions were, Paul is telling them, parents, do not provoke your children to anger. That meant that the parent needed to pay attention to the son or the daughter's reaction. And that was completely absent back then. You could not care less about what your children wanted, felt, or needed, or thought about anything. And Paul is saying, consider them, consider their feelings and their opinions. And so for parents, submitting to one another looks like considering your children as well. Now, parenthesis, this does not mean that the parent should do anything in their power to avoid that his or her child does not get angry. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Bible says. It is not what we should do. In fact, it is a given that our children will get angry at us when when they don't get their way. And actually happened to me on the ride home this morning because Luciana said, Daddy, why don't we just spray paint our car? 
And I mean, what do you mean? Yeah, we should just paint it in different colors. And I was like, okay, no, see, that. you can think about it. And then Sophia <laughs> jumped right in. Yeah, we should write the Rodriguez rule in it. And I was like, okay. Um, so I didn't want to say no to them because I knew they were going to get angry. But um, we cannot say yes to everything our kids want just because we don't want them to get angry. And as adults, it's true for us. We are children of God, and sometimes we do not like what God does. And we sometimes get angry as well. But not provoking our children to anger means not exacerbate our children. To treat them with, with dignity, to treat them with gentleness, not to treat them harshly so that they become anger to us. So basically, Paul is commanding parents to be loving, to be gentle, just like Christ treats us, just like the Father treats us. Even though this is not explicit in this verse, it's explicit in the entire chapter and in the entire letter. Everything that Paul says, he points back to Jesus. Do this because that's how Jesus acted. Do this because Jesus did it for you. So Paul is saying to all of us parents, be gentle, be loving, be graceful to your children because that's how God treats us. And that is... For me, one of the most difficult things to do. I briefly told you last week a little bit of my upbringing. And I had a grandparent who had a horse and a gun, and you needed, you needed to line up and obey him. And he used to whip his children with the same whip he used for the horse. And that was the punishment. And I struggle still to be and see my kids as recipients of grace. I tend to be very law-directed uh, or influenced. And this is a corrective for all of us. Because Paul, even though it's not explicit, he's telling us, do it the way Jesus does it for you. And last time I checked, God is very gracious to me. And I seldomly are gracious to my kids. And that is something that I need to work on. And I believe that some of us need to be reminded of. Paul calls us to act like Christ acted towards us, to treat others, especially our children, like Christ treats us. Paul Tripp, uh, if you are a parent and you have not read this book, I highly recommend it. Paul David Tripp it has a book called Parenting, and he says, God hasn't made a mistake in, t in tasking you with being his tool for the forming of the souls of your children. You see, he has opened the eyes of your heart to his existence, presence, and rule so that you could be a tool of the same in your children, in your children. He has revealed himself to you, not just for you, but for your children. But there's something else he's done. He's bestowed upon you his forgiving, rescuing, transforming, and delivering grace so that you could be his tool of the same in the lives of each of your children. His gift of grace is not just so that you would be a re recipient of grace, but also a daily instrument of that very same grace in the lives of those he has placed in your care. In His grace, you find everything that you need to be what God wants you to be in the lives of your children and to do what He has called you to do with them.
Paul is calling us to be recipients of grace that continue to give that grace to our children. We are to treat our children as Christ treats us, not with harshness or as a burden, but as recipients of grace. And uh, another important uh, contribution to this is that even though it's not explicit, some scholars believe that this was the basis for the Christian notion that kids are not your property, which was not the common knowledge back then. We are only stewards of kids that belong to God. And then Paul closes by saying, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And this is this is key for all of us. There's a lot of parents here, a lot of parents with small children. And there is definitely a purpose that God has placed in our children and a purpose for us as parents. And that purpose is to bring our children up in the, in the Lord. And I want to emphasize here that the Bible places a heavy uh, emphasis on instruction, instructing our kids in the Lord. And I think this is contrasting to what most of our society places an emphasis on, which is on the success of our kids. Granted, we are stewards of our children. We are to see that they are well emotionally, we are to make sure that they have all their physical needs met. We are to make sure that they are developed in their education, that they have the, a, a relational well-being, a social well-being, and all the things, all of those things are important, and the Bible commands us to provide for them and to do them. But if there's anything that the Bible places an emphasis on, prioritizes for us as parents, is to bring our children in the ways of the Lord. What does that mean? What does it mean to raise your, your child in the way of the Lord? It means to make sure that our children, that we're prioritizing in our children, that they know the Lord, that they know the Word of God, that this is also a priority for them. Our highest priority as Christian parents is that our children grow in the Lord. And this requires discipline, and it also it requires instruction. So, as Christian parents, we cannot place an emphasis on academics, the arts, the physicals, the sports, or any other area of our child above their Growth in the Lord. Every single commandment that we find in Proverbs or throughout Scripture is for us to raise our kids in the ways of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6 actually tells us, teach the law to your kids. Place the law on your door so that your children will know the Lord. We are not preparing our children for this earth only. And if you are doing that, you are doing a disservice to your children. As Christians, we do not believe that this earth is all there is. And if you're emphasizing that your child is successful and 
a great or a person or rich or the best whatever, and that's all you're caring about, you are not doing your job fully. Because as important as those things are, they are not the most important thing that the Bible says. We are to prepare our children for the next life, the one that lasts for eternity. This is just a vapor. This is just a minute, a second in the grand view of everything. Our biggest emphasis as parents should be to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We are the primary influences and teachers of the Bible to our children. Whatever we do here in the church is not a substitute for what you should be doing at, at home. Whatever we do here is not what's going to determine if your child knows or does not know God. That is something you're going to influence them to. We're in charge of helping our kids understand the importance of God. We're in charge of helping our kids understand the importance of the Bible. We are here to help our kids understand the importance of church, of serving, of giving. All of those things we need to instill in our children. And this is important. And our children will see if this is important for us, and they will probably imitate this. Now, parenthesis, this is not a formula. This does not mean that because you do these things, your child is automatically going to be a Christian. No. I know of great pastors and theologians who are faithful, and they raise their children in the Lord, and for some reason that I do not understand, their children did not end up being Christians. And I don't know why the Bible never tells us that this is a guarantee or a formula, but I can assure you that this will help your children. We should be raising our kids in the Lord. Now, this is mostly for parents of small children. But I want to I talk to the parents who have grown children. If you find yourself in that situation in which maybe your children did not do as well as you wanted them to do, or maybe your children did not grow up to be what you expected them to be, I want to tell you it's not over. I want to tell you if your child or your daughter is alive, there is a chance. You should continue to pray for your children. You should continue to influence them in love. And I want to say, if you're struggling with the guilt or maybe the disappointment, of the decisions that your children have made, on one side, it's not entirely your, your fault. I've heard from parents that struggle with their adult children because they didn't turn out how they wanted them to turn out. And they feel like it's all their fault. My oldest son is 11, and I start to see treat, the traits on him that I feel guilty of. And I'm like, man, he just reacted the same way I did. It's all my fault. I, can't, I cannot imagine what, how it feels when you have adult children. But I want to tell us, I want to tell you, it's not entirely your fault. 
In the same way that it's not entirely your fault that he was successful. Because that was, that's easier to assimilate, right? Look at my child. He's just like me. He's so successful because of what I said. Look at that girl. She's just... No. In the same way that it's not entirely your fault that he didn't turn out the way you wanted him, it's also not your fault or glory to you because that person turned out the way you wanted them. There is one person who is in control and loves and cares for our children even more than ourselves, and it's God. And we have to rest in him but you can continue to be an example of gospel living to our to your grown-up children and i want to finish by by doing what i try to always do i try to find a way in which this text links us to the gospel or takes us to the gospel and i think we can see that as Children, we don't make the mark. We are not good children. And as a, if you're a parent, as parents, we're not the best parents either. But we have a substitute who does it perfectly for us. Jesus was the perfect son. He obeyed his father in everything. So if you were not or are not a perfect son, you have someone who came to do it for you Perfectly, and his name is Jesus. He obeyed his parents until death. He literally said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That is the perfect child. We cannot say that. Nobody can say that, but Jesus can. Jesus obeyed his father until death. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is a perfect son because we cannot be the perfect uh, children. He is our substitute. And if you're not a good parent, Jesus acts as a substitute in showing us how the Father loves us perfectly. The Father, through Jesus, treats us with grace. The Father, through Jesus, shows us love and mercy. And God, the Father, disciplines us in love. He is patient with us. He leads us to himself by giving his life for us. And since we cannot be good parents on our own strength, we have a father that sent his son to help us see and substitute us because we cannot be good parents in our own strength. In Jesus, we have a substitute for our inability to parent in grace and love, and we need the gospel every day for us, and we need the gospel every day for our, our children and as parents as well. But Jesus doesn't only act as our substitute to do what we cannot do. He also acts as someone who comes to give us what we never received. So if you had a bad experience with your parents, if you didn't get the love and care that your parents needed to give you, 
if you were abused by your parents, if you suffered as a child, I want you to know that you now have a perfect father who loves you, who provides for you, who is there for you, who smiles at you, who is gentle towards you, who sees your suffering and empathizes with your pain. Even if your parents fail you, you have a heavenly father that will never fail you. And he is waiting for you to spend eternity in a perfect place with you. And if you're not a believer, I just want to open this invitation to you and say, this love, the love of the perfect father is available for you. It's unconditional. He sent his son to do everything for you. Because he wants you to be with him. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He has already paid for your sins. He has already paid for your mistakes and shortcomings and failures. And all he wants you to do is recognize that you need him and come to him in repentance. And receive him as your Lord and Savior. If you want to know more about this and you're not a believer, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service about this. I finished with this. This is the second time I say I finished. This is the real time. If you are a single dad, single mom, I want to I say that I admire you. You are doing something that is really hard to do. Don't give up. God is with you. God cares about your children more than you care about them. And he's right there with you, parenting, with you, making up for whatever you are missing. The Holy Spirit is right there with you. You have everything that you need to raise your children in the best way that you can. You're not alone. And if you have an unbeliever's spouse, I want to tell you the exact same thing. You're not alone. Parenting with a, an unbeliever's spouse should be, I can imagine, really hard. It is hard when, you, when you're both Christians really hard. I cannot imagine what it is to do that when your husband or your wife is not, does not share your faith. But as much as God is with me and my wife, when we share our faith, God is with you, even if your spouse does not share your faith. The Holy Spirit is with you. You're not alone. And more than you even imagine, God cares for those children and want the best for you and for them. Let's pray.